This is your coffee break. Hey friends, I'm back again this week and I have with me a real treat for you. I have Mark Rubenstein, who is an award-winning novelist, a physician, and a psychiatrist. He's written seven nonfiction books in medical and psychological genres. He has also authored four novels and three novellas. He lives in Connecticut with his dogs and his wife, and I am so excited to welcome him to the show today. Welcome, Mark. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's great to be with you. Oh, my gosh. I just have so many questions for you. First and foremost, you've had such a rich life experience. I feel like you've covered all sorts of different careers. Tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming a writer. Well, I always loved reading as a kid, and I was just enchanted by uh, Aesop's fables and other uh, writings and fairy tales as, as a youngster, and uh, the, the reading bug stayed with me throughout all my childhood and uh, into my early adulthood. I ended up uh, in the Army uh, after graduating from college, and in the Army I was placed in a medical unit and found that I loved it. So. I got out, went back to college, and uh, became a physician. Uh, while there, I discovered that during my psychiatry rotation, I just loved hearing stories from patients, because in psychiatry, every patient has a story to mm -hmm. tell. Even though you may have a 100 people with the same label or diagnosis, they may have a 100 different stories to tell. And I eventually went into psychiatry and began writing case histories about patients, which we had to do as part of our training. Hmm. And I realized I was writing stories. <laughs> and uh, that just fascinated me. And uh, I would even provide dialogue rather than just reporting about what patients had said. I would put the words on the paper. And one thing led to another, and I began writing medical uh, self-help books for the lay population, and, and then eventually that just morphed into novel writing. So it's really been, I think, a lifelong journey. I love hearing about that journey. I love that you just sort of naturally turned to writing. I feel like you've made a lot of good and purposeful choices in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about living the life that you want to live? I sometimes look back at uh, what I've done or have not done, and I suppose, like everyone else, I sort of regret that I didn't really begin writing fiction earlier on. But then again, if I, if I uh, hadn't gone into psychiatry, I wouldn't have the vast wealth of experience and uh, the the uh, capacity to have heard other people's stories. I mean, I have such a wealth of background information that just feeds so nicely into telling stories. Uh, mm. So you can always regret some of the choices you made, and I always think of Robert Frost's poem about, you know, the, the road not taken. Mm. And uh, we all have to make choices of one kind or another. Uh, living the life you want to live, I, I suppose, you know, that changes also. When I was younger, uh, I think like most of us, I had more of a an exciting and romantic vision of the way things should be mm -hmm. or would hopefully be. But now uh, I look back and I say, gee, I'm just where I want to be. I, I don't think I'd want to be anywhere else. I, I'm writing what I love to write. I'm writing what I love to read. And they say write what you know, but I, I think I write more than what I know. I write what I would like to know and what I would love to read uh, or the kinds of stories I'd love to read. So I guess I'm, I'm uh, where I really would like to be. Um, 
and I hope things just stay that way. That's all. <laughs> I hope they do too. Are you still a practicing physician and psychiatrist? No, I, I stopped that about three years ago. I finally made the, the commitment and the choice to, to uh, really do what I think I, I, what I know now, uh, what I thought then I wanted to do after many years of treating patients, of evaluating patients in, in consultations and so forth. I went into full-time writing. You know, just for a moment, getting back to what I said before, and, and this may relate to some of your listeners, uh, you know, many of us aspire to write, and many of us are fearful. It, it does take a certain amount of courage to mm. sit down and say, okay, I'm going to really do what I know or think I want to do. I'm going to try and make it come true. It does take courage. And, the, you know, one of the old nostrums is write what you know. Well, you know, what do any of us know? <laughs> we, I think we all know more than we think we do. After all, we've all held jobs. We've all had childhoods. We've all fallen in love or been disappointed. We've all felt anger or even fury. We've all felt frustration. Every one of us has uh, attempted to do something at which we either failed or didn't live up to some internal marker that we had set for ourselves. Every one of us knows virtually every feeling and almost every thought that any human being can have. So when you really come down to it, every one of us knows much more than we know. We know about life. And if you write about what you know, in essence, you're writing about life. Mm. The, lives, the lives of other people, your own life, and you're merging your own inner experiences with your experience of the world out there, the world at large. So we, we all can write what we know and what we don't even realize we know. It sounds like we're just naturally equipped to tell stories in, in that sense. Is that part of how you found the courage to sort of get beyond the fear of, oh, my gosh, I'm, I have to write? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, uh, you, you mentioned uh, uh, the, the natural tendency to, to either want to tell stories or listen to stories. I mean, every one of us as a child loved listening to stories. I mean, that's why there are fairy tales. That's why uh, it's the old uh, situation of, you know, read me a story, mm. mom or dad, before I go to bed. Since time began and when people first populated this planet, they sat in caves by fires and the oral tradition of storytelling prevailed. And it still prevails, although not really orally anymore. Uh, we read books, we, we read online, uh, or we watch and listen to stories uh, on our devices or on television or in the movies. So storytelling is a long tradition that has been around since human beings first uh, began populating the earth. And, uh, you know, it is, I think, a natural human tendency to want to tell stories and to listen to stories. And it does take the courage to, if this is the way someone is wound up and wants to, to write, to sit down, I'll never forget when I first sat down and, and began writing my first novel, about halfway through, I said, my, my God, this, this is really happening. <laughs> so when I first sat down to write my first novel, I was just amazed at some point, I'm not really quite sure where it was, I began to realize that this story was almost telling itself. It was mm -hmm. happening. And it was something that I, I looked at with amazement. And I realized that once I had found that 
little bit of courage to begin, the impulse and the impetus were there, and the story got told. Yes, it needed lots of revision and rewriting and all of that, but if you have it within you and you want to make the effort and you have the courage to do so, it can get done. And, uh, you know, every well-known writer from James Patterson on up and down, at one time, every writer was totally unknown. That is extremely true. And that's very, I think, very heartening for a lot of people who are listening right now. So I appreciate you saying that. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, none of us or very, very few of us are ever going to achieve the recognition, the fame, uh, the the money or whatever you want to call it, that someone like a James Patterson or a Nelson DeMille or a Stephen King have, or a Lisa Gardner have achieved. You have to write because you love it. You have to love the work of it. You have to love uh, the the actual craft of doing it, of getting better at it, and of seeing some creation come to life. Um, if you're writing for fame or for money, I, I think it's a losing cause uh, because very few are really chosen for that pathway. So uh, it, it has to be something that's basically you're driven to do and something that you love to do. And if you write what you love and if you love what you're doing, that's all it really takes to be satisfied with what you're doing. And and, um, that's ultimately the reward. Yes, that is so, so true. And that's one of the things I love to talk about on this show. Um, Sort of in that vein, I think for a while, it sounds like you were very busy. You were balancing work and life and maybe some writing in there. Would you have any advice for people who are sort of going through the same thing? Well, I did my best to make it work. And and there was a time when I was writing, uh, particularly the self-help medical uh, books, be they psychological or or strictly medical, where I was working with other physicians and and putting together a book on whether it was heart disease or cancer or... or, um, plastic surgery, whatever. I was writing and practicing psychiatry at the same time, and you have to find time to write. That would be my first bit of advice. Uh, Write every single day, even if it's only for 10 or 15 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. There were times I was literally writing between patients. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was especially true if a patient canceled, if I had a free hour. Rather than uh, daydreaming or going out for a cup of coffee, I would sit at the desk and I would write. And it doesn't matter if, you know, if it doesn't get down on the page or on the computer screen, it isn't there and and, and it can't be either good or bad. So you have to write to have something to look at and to make better. My second bit of advice would be if you want to write, you should read. Hmm. Read either the genre you want to write in or just read in general. If you want to write novels or fiction, you should read fiction. And it it barely matters what genre. Uh, Actually, I've always viewed reading as an apprenticeship and workshop for a writer. And uh, the more you read, I think in the long run, the better you're going to write. So Reading and writing and writing and reading are the two main pathways to being able to feel somewhat confident about writing, especially if you're writing fiction. You see and read what other people have done, how they do it. 
much more valuable, at least in my opinion, than going to a writer's workshop or mm. taking courses or any of that kind of thing. I mean, there are people who really do derive a great deal of benefit from those kinds of things. But for me, it was really reading and writing. I would agree with that so much. And also, I'd like to apologize. There is a tornado siren going off. I don't know if you can hear it. But it's that's so it, so if if you lose me, I'm probably being swept up uh, in a tornado. So that's exciting. <laughs> Uh, you'll be in a swirl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so just, I guess, farewell in advance. And I hope uh, you don't take that as, as me being rude. And I'm curious, what do you love most about the writing process? I love the moment where you feel you're stuck in a plot or uh, you're not really quite sure where this is going. And you may have come to a, a little cul-de-sac or dead end. And suddenly it just it seems to fall from your brain onto the page. Mm. Something happens and, and it crystallizes and you see a new pathway. It's that moment. It's, it, the, the equivalent in psychiatry or in psychotherapy is that so-called aha moment when yes. the patient gets it. You know, the patient develops that kernel of insight that really seems to uh, crystallize everything that's going wrong or at least uh, opens up the door. Um, same thing in the writing. I love that. I love the the notion of looking uh, on page 180, let's say, looking back at page 80 and realizing that the character I've created has done on page 180, has done or said something that isn't consistent with what occurred on page 80 in the script. And I have to go back to page 80 and change it. Mm. And that tells me that the character is breathing and is mm. living and is alive and has taken on a life of his or her own and that it has escaped uh, my, my willful control to some extent. I mean, we, we can't really invest the character with a life uh, force of its own, but uh, it has morphed and changed, and that's a, a wonderful experience, and I think anybody who writes fiction uh, hopefully comes to that point where realizing the character has evolved, and that's part of what I love, and that's part of that same creative spark that you suddenly find uh, in the midst of uh, what is otherwise perhaps a boring day. <laughs> I agree so much. And I'm so curious, and I don't know if as a psychiatrist, if you'd be able to offer any insight on this, but those characters, what are those, those characters that become alive in our minds? Are they just aspects of who we are? Or can you offer any insight there? They are aspects of who we are. Uh, after all, you know, it all comes from the writer's imagination, which is part of the writer's being and mind. So there's no way, you know, I am all of my characters and I am none of them at the same time. Hmm. And it, it, it's, it's a bit of a mystery. Uh, you know, Freud once said, and he, of course, was a psychiatrist and a psychologist and, and a philosopher of sorts. He once said that uh, he can understand so much of the mystery of the mind in terms of how he formulated psychology, but the mystery behind the creative spark of the artist, and he was referring to any art, be it writing or painting or whatever, the mystery behind the spark of any artist escapes him. And it's something that we can't quite quantify, and it's very difficult to really pin down. But it's the character evolves or derives sort of like 
the way Aphrodite did from the head of uh, of Zeus. You, you mm. know, it just jumps uh, out of <laughs> one's mind. On the other hand, if you look at it a little bit more mechanistically, the, the characters come from one's own inner fantasy life and mm. also from one's experiences in life. After all, I, when I'm writing, I, I draw on everything and anything I can find, things I know, things I wonder about, things I fantasize about. And they don't all have to be true. They can be, you know, fantasy by definition isn't necessarily true. It's something you imagine, you think about, or uh, that, that you, it's something wondrous, perhaps, that mm. just comes into your mind, and you figure, well, let's go with this and see where it leads. The real bottom line answer is, Sarah, I don't know necessarily <laughs> where all this stuff comes from, but we all have it within us. After all, we all dream. Mm. We all have a fantasy life. We all imagine things that we would love to do. We can all we all watch movies and television and read books and we and in so doing we let our minds be taken over by someone else's imagination mm -hmm. and we live through the conflict and the chaos of what we're seeing or reading or hearing. So that we're all capable of imagining and of uh living vicariously through the creations of another. So why not create your own stuff? I love this idea. And you've sort of hit upon this as a theme several times, this community of imagination, whether we're mm -hmm. listening to someone tell us stories, whether we're watching, you know, films and movies. I, I love that. Is that something that you've noticed or had, I guess, a lot of experience with or something that's been an important part of your creative life is that community? Yeah, I you know every year I go to Thriller Fest uh, in New York City, where uh, which is an international organization, and where hundreds of uh, writers of mainly thriller fiction uh, meet, and there are workshops and and uh, seminars, and I go out to dinner with people like David Morrell and, mm. and others, and and we talk about writing, we talk about television, we talk about movies, uh, anything involving storytelling. We also talk about other things. I mean, I always talk about my dogs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and yes, you, you, you live within a community. I, I get email. I just got an email this morning from Simon Toyn in the UK. And um, uh, he said, hey, you know, Don Winslow used your name in, in uh, his latest book, The Force, you know. Cool. And, uh, but he misspelled it. He, he oh. did an E instead of an I. I said, yeah, but why quibble, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, yeah, yeah you, you, you live amongst and with a, a community of, of like-minded people. In any profession uh, or uh, uh, vocation, people do that. Uh, you know, teachers know teachers, and, and doctors know doctors, lawyers know each other, writers uh, uh, communicate with each other one way or another. And, and um, you know, it's a wonderful thing, it's, because writing is a very solitary way of living mm -hmm. your life. Uh, you are alone either in front of your tablet or your computer, or some people still write by longhand, however it is, and you're alone with your thoughts, your imagination, you're living that vicarious life uh, of, of imaginings. It, it is quite a, 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 a lonely existence uh, to the extent whereby you spend a few hours every day writing. So it's great to have other people to talk with, not just socially, but also even in the writing community. I want to make sure that we talk about your book, which is called Beyond Bedlam's Door, uh, which is currently available for pre-order and comes out May 15th. Can you tell us a little bit about it and I guess where people can find it to purchase it? 
Sure. Uh, well, Beyond Bedlam's Door is the sequel to the first one that came out about eight months ago called Bedlam's Door. Bedlam's Door is True Tales of Madness and Hope, and Beyond Bedlam's Door, is the subtitle is True Tales from the Couch and Courtroom. These are all true stories uh, of people I've either treated or consulted with in my role as a psychiatrist over the course of years. Of course, everything about them has changed in terms of any identifiable uh, uh, information or data, all circumstantial details have been altered completely. Uh, these are people who, for one reason or another, stick out in my mind for as long ago, from as long ago as 30 years ago. Mm. And uh, each one of them has a unique story to tell. And again, that's what's so fascinating about psychology and psychiatry. And each story, there are 21 separate stories, and each one has an afterword in Beyond uh, Bedlam's Door. And uh, in the afterword, I sort of explicate in, in I hope, simple, easy to understand, uh, not overly technical language, uh, what some of the elements of the story really illustrate in terms mm. of, of uh, life and, and also, of course, from the perspective of psychology and psychiatry. I hope they shed a good deal of light on what psychiatrists do and on the common elements of, of a human living, uh, uh, what it means to be a human being and to live in a world uh, where conflict is almost always present and where we each have to negotiate our ways through uh, life's conflicts and problems and difficulties. And um, at the same time, I, I think each of the stories is very entertaining, and I view each one of them as almost something of a little bit of a mini mystery of sorts, mm. where uh, there's a reason a 104-year-old woman says that the reason she's lived for so long is because her mother had a special arrangement with God. Wow. There's a reason why, yeah, uh, and, and, and I explicate that in that story. There's a reason why in the first story, which is called A Place at the Table, a psychiatrist tried to, uh, try, tried to lure a patient he was treating into helping him murder six people. Oh my gosh. Yes, that's the first called a place at the table. And uh, once you've read the story, you understand fully what was going on, why it happened, how it constituted a uh, both a criminal and civil uh, act uh, warranting both civil and criminal prosecution and, and what the trial was like and why. So uh, each of the stories sheds light on certain domains of human functioning and, and uh, at the same time, I hope, is entertaining and, and gives people food for thought. The book is available uh, in bookstores and on Amazon uh, for pre-order. It's coming out on October 15th. Uh, the other book, which is Bedlam's Door, uh, has been out for about eight months now. That's also available in bookstores and uh, on Amazon. Awesome. As well as Barnes & Noble and the indie bookstore websites and so forth. Perfect. And if people are interested in finding you on social media or on online, can they do that as well? Yeah, I might. I have about 74,000 Twitter followers. Uh, it's at uh, M. Rubenstein. That's all small case, uh, capital C-T. That's M. Rubenstein, Connecticut. My website is uh, markrubenstein-author.com. So 
people can find me uh, there. Or if they're in Connecticut, they can find me if they just uh, look around. <laughs> I appreciate that. And um, and we were saying before I started recording this interview that your Twitter presence is really inspiring. So if you're out on Twitter, please do follow Mark. He is just incredibly inspirational and a joy to follow. And gosh, you have just been a joy on this podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and your wisdom. I appreciate it. And I'm sure my listeners appreciate it too. Well, thank you for having me, Sarah. I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, writing and reading and books and my books. And uh, it's been great talking with you. Thank you.